The human animal isn't doing well in the modern world. We have become domesticated and have lost our wildness. The Human Animal Show explores a return to a state of wild health, our original, authentic human animal. And now your hosts, Frank Forensich and Dr. Rodney King. Hello. Don. Good, good to see Hello. you. <laughs> Fantastic. Hello, First off, Don, let, let me just say, you know, thank you so much for giving us your time today. I'm a huge fan of your work. And you're someone that I look to when I want to learn how indigenous ways of knowing and being could potentially help us. And I believe it can. And that's what we're going to talk about, especially as a global community, tackling all the current slew of modern crises that we seem to be con constantly involved in or creating. So uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for your gracious words and for your your interest in this foundational approach to rebalancing our planet. So you know what I thought would be a really good starting point just to get started? I, not everybody listening to this is going to know your background. So I was wondering if you can possibly give us just a brief introduction to your background and how you came to really focusing on you know, just the indigenous ways of knowing and being as a scholar, because that's that's also part of what you do, which I, I really appreciate. Well, thank you. And such an introduction is the indigenous way, because the only thing we really know about is our is ourselves. Right. And uh, so um, I'm uh, born in Missouri to a uh, uh, an Irish uh, family um, with uh, rumors of uh, from the five sisters that uh, an adopted uh, escapee from the Trail of Tears, adopted by the Caldwell family, and she was a Cherokee woman, but uh, never, you know, it's not not been confirmed. I had no experience uh, uh, living in that way. In fact, if anything, um, my mom would not want to talk about it a lot. Um, after the Marine Corps, uh, I um, took out the chip on my shoulder, the Vietnam era, by doing adventures like Whitewater kayaking, and I attempted to be the first person to ascend the Rio Urique here in Mexico. I uh, had a near-death experience. Uh, the river disappeared into an underground ch uh, channel. Your readers can just put in the shaman's message on YouTube and, and, and watch the narration of the slides. And um, uh, lived, I was rescued by the Raramari Cimarron people. This is a group of indigenous people that have not are at the bottom of an 8,000 foot canyon and, and not exposed to uh, Western ways and religions. Um, long story, they, they had a vision, uh, changed my life, um, and uh, came back uh, and um, ultimately quit my job as a sports psychologist and went back to school to study indigenous worldview and education. Landed the job as Dean of Education at Oglala Lakota College right away uh, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Got in with the, the Sundance group and uh, became a Sundancer in one of the seven sacred ceremonies of the Lakota, including the vision quest and the an EP ceremony is the making of a relative. So they say that my, my spirit will not go to where the Irish people go. And I'll be in Ireland uh, in a couple of months. So I won't tell the people there that. But... Um, 
I'll go to where the Lakota go. Uh, I, I saw and lived and been with enough contemporary cultures that against all odds are holding on to the original ways that for 99% of human history, if we look at tool makers at 2 million years, um, lived. And I saw something that I, I hadn't seen in our in our dominant cultures, the, the kind of happiness and health and sense of humor and all these things. And so um, I started studying worldview precepts and looking at the information and the scholarship on from first contacts to our and, and, and good anthropology um, and looked at how Robert Redfield's work out of the University of Chicago uh, really showed that essentially when we talk about worldview, it's deeper than a culture. So that cultures, religions, philosophies fit under a worldview. And when most people talk about it, they talk about things like human centeredness versus not materialism versus spirituality. Ultimately, that there are just really two foundational worldviews. And, uh, and, and so my work is about finding complementarity between them because the indigenous worldview, unlike the dominant worldview, is a non-binary worldview. So seeking complementarity and a union of opposites is the goal of, of my work while moving out of the out of balance we are with the dominant worldview precepts into uh, the, the more nature-based uh, kinship worldview that, that my last book was about. So my, my question building off that was, what do you feel are the key challenges and barriers indigenous communities face when trying to share and implement their traditional knowledge and practices in mainstream society? Well, that, that's a, a very important question and has some very significant dynamics to it. First of all, I want to make a distinction between what you're saying and worldview. Hmm. Uh, the indigenous worldview belongs to all of us, anyone who is indigenous to planet Earth. The indigenous worldview are the precepts that the great diversity of indigenous cultures have in common. It's one of the things that I've noted. I, I got back from being with the Kogi in Colombia recently and, and like all the other places I've been with the Kumkak and others. You see a tremendously different set of spiritual practices and ideas, and but the common themes just go across. So that's worldview. Place-based wisdom is different, what we call TEK, uh, traditional ecological knowledge. Nobody can own that except the people who speak the language fluently, who have multi-generational experience in that place, who know the ceremonies. Now, that's what we must do everything we can to fight for, uh, to, to support, because they are being, they are being decimated. The languages are, 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 are every week are being lost. I've got about 11 Navajo the students who are getting their doctorate. And over the years, maybe five years ago, they would tell me 75% of the Navajo Nation, the largest in the United States, has lost it. Now they're telling me 85. So we've got to do everything we can because that language is of the earth. It teaches how to live in harmony. Our website uh, that, that we have called provensustainable.org shows a number of contemporary indigenous cultures that are proving this. 
The 2019 United Nations Biodiversity Report, the largest study ever done, 50 countries, 450 scientists, 15,000 peer-reviewed papers, showed that where indigenous worldview was operating, the extinction rates were non-existent or severely reduced. That's why 80% of all diversity on planet Earth today is on the 3% of lands that indigenous uh, that the 3% of the population is 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 taking care of uh, on 20% of the land so so that said your question is about the barriers well they're not trying to teach their place based knowledge they're trying to protect it right now indian country is sort of divided whereas and, and you have to understand both sides one is saying no our medicine needs to be shared our wisdom needs to be shared Others are saying, no, you share it and then they'll, they'll, they'll adulterate it or take it away or steal it uh, like they've stolen everything else. So I understand that dynamic. I'll give you a little story that, that kind of will help your readers or, or your listeners that really get it. My wife and I, American popular jazz, and many, many years ago, I was a founding member of the Star School, Service to All Relations, a Navajo school in, in Arizona. And we did a fundraiser. And so we were playing our music. And the last song I played, I played a Lakota ceremonial thank you song. Right away after I was putting my piano away, my keyboard away, respected Navajo medicine person comes up to me and scolds me. For us, you know better than to take that out of the circle and share that with all these, these people. I tapped him on his shoulder and thanked him and said, we disagree, my brother. Not 30 seconds later, another very respected medicine person, I, I always like to say more, more respected. And he came up and he said, For us, thank you for taking that out of the circle. They need to understand that <laughs> this thank you song is, is important, right? So Indian country is divided. Um, you can read my article at the university, my peer review article at the University of British Columbia's critical education called the indigenization controversy for whom by whom. And I speak to this, right? So it's a great question that you're asking. So the barriers, of course, for place-based knowledge are holding on to it. They're holding on to it and, and they need they need everyone's assistance in every way. I think that the, the Vatican's just having uh, announced that the doctrine of discovery was wrong. Maybe there'll be some people motivated to start to, to, to help with that. I don't know. But the worldview, um, that is something that belongs to everyone. And, and, and a lot of my indigenous brothers and sisters can confuse the two and think that when you're teaching worldview, you're misappropriating cult, the, the culture. A lot of them don't like the story I, I, I just told. So, so that's sort of a little bit of a, of a dilemma. I, I think that those who are, are taking the position of, of not sharing have a little more anger than maybe they that's understandable but that is, is something that is not is not as healthy because we're all in the same in the same boat and we're all knowing there's one way to look at earth it's either a nature-based planet or it's a human human-based planet and you know what can i say to that so don when you just i, I really like the way that you are positioning this the idea of the the two worldviews so just just to go back to that for a second how how would you 
how would you define those? Like, what would you call, right? What would you call those two worldviews if we had to give them a name? Just so that we don't well, get confused, right? Sure. Between what you yeah. just said. Yeah, I give them the name. This is, uh, you know, this is uh, the, the, the worldview chart that people can go to uh, uh, online and just put in worldview chart for those. And you, you can order these in big posters and everything. Because all my work, all my my proceeds for books and things go to go to indigenous causes. Um, but uh, um, I refer to the ones on the left as the dominant worldview manifestations. Hmm. Uh, the, in, in 1950s, uh, Robert Redford referred to the, met, the civilized and metropolitan and the, prim, and the primitive. I'm calling them the dominant and the indigenous, right? Okay. And, and what's really important is to look at this from, like I said earlier, as a, as a non-binary. Think of it really in ways, although it's an oversimplified theory, brain lateralization, left and right brain hemispheres. There's a lot of science behind it. it it's just oversimplified, I believe. But if, if, from a metaphorical position, you can consider the dominant worldview as our left brain. Mm -hmm. And you consider the 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 indigenous worldview as as our as our right brain right brain and according to mcgillcrest you know three volume work that just came out you know he's saying we've got to he, he doesn't really bring in an indigenous worldview which kind of is is, is too bad and, and there's a lot of western western uh, uh reasons for that but um I, I if we look at these as potentially complementary so that we understand that we need we're way too out of balance on this side and we've got to move over here but that doesn't say that contextually for example the first one is rigid hierarchy which is typical of all of our cultures in the east and west that are dominant cultures versus non-hierarchical which is typical of traditional cultures that have not been forced into uh into governments like in the, in the united states that are that are hierarchical well the Lakota, during a buffalo hunt, they go over into hierarchy. They they assign someone who's the the top dog. It's gonna know the buffalo, the routes, the safety, all that stuff, right? But you know, the next buffalo hunt, they'll they'll, they'll choose somebody else, and then when they get back, that guy's got no more no more stuff, right? So we've got to look at this sort of as a continuum, and recognize, uh, and even at the worst, that wow. You know, you can't have a mountain without a valley. And, and maybe this is we got to see what we're trying to do over on the right side um, uh, as as where we where we want to be more. Uh, more focused on. Yeah, I, I really like that, because what it does is then it, it, it does allow the kind of more left brain kind of perspective that most people are in the western world it it allows them to understand that okay there is a time and a place for that but there is also a time and a place for the indigenous worldview and that that approach you know and just like you were talking about mcgillcrest i came across this quote and i'm not sure if you saw it but it kind of speaks to what you just said he noted that we might have to revise the superior assumption that we understand the world better than our ancestors and adopt a more realistic view that we just see it differently and may indeed be seeing it less than they did. I would love for you to send that to me after our, our, our presentation. I've looked at, at so much of his work and, uh, and, and, and my, my critique of it is that um, he is emphasizing uh, and, and, and 
I understand that there's some science behind it, but he's emphasizing, as kind of I am, the the right side, right? But he's characterizing it as lesser and greater. Hmm. And, 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 and the indigenous twin stories of the world, and they're all over the world, and, you know, he uses the Iroquois one in his book. Hmm. But he uses a version that he admittedly in his references says he got from Jacob Needleman. And, and Jacob Needleman's book, where he presented this, is about, it's called The Heart of the Soul of America. It's about the wisdom of the founding fathers. You know, I mean, and so uh, Paul Radin says that this twin myth is the foundational myth of indigenous peoples. It's about the, the, the balance, the solar and lunar, the yin and the yang, the, the right and the left, right? And, 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 and in the interpretations of them, there isn't one's greater than the other, right? So right, we can look at the, 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 this Iroquois story that he brought, and my research shows that it was very Christianized, the, the interpretations, not to mention Needleman's you know, book re referring to indigenous as something that the, that the founding fathers had, um, without even mentioning the, 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 doc, you know, the, the, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy being a, a actual model for it um and and, and the, he only quoted indigenous people two times and those were very, very and one of them was demeaning saying they were archaic right so i, I really i've written him i've asked him to co-author a, a piece with me where i said we agree on so much but i'm wondering why you have not really given credit to something that you said it was a surprise that you learned these things in your new book um and yet the literature on indigenous evidence of sustainability and all these things is so great. So that quote, I not did not see that quote. And if you came across that, that was that's one out of uh, two thousand pages. That uh, you know, so that's a critique that I have. That is, I think it was the first time I've made it public. No, I think it's a good critique. I'm, I'm not entirely sure where he had said that, but I can track it down for sure and I'll send it to you. I'm uh, not. I'm not. I don't want to speak for him. So I don't really know um, where his position is. I can only speak for myself. And what I've noticed is that there seems to be, especially in the modern world, a distrust of ind indigenous worldviews. And that is because of a, a propaganda campaign that's been on the go for a very long time to see, as you noted, indigenous ways of knowing and being as being non-scientific, right? That's kind of how it's presented as primitive, and what we do now is better. And I think sometimes what ends up happening is, is that when you come out on the side of indigenous ways of knowing and being or the indigenous worldview, you are stepping outside or against the status quo. And by doing that, there's a, you feel the natural pushback because you feel that propaganda being pushed up against you. So sometimes I guess for some people, they almost feel like it might be academic suicide or maybe financial suicide to actually push that, which is unfortunate. At least that's my perspective from, from what I, I think. It's a, I think it's a very on target perspective. And I've made the comparison in my, cause I spoke to him on, on the, on, on the phone about this saying that, you know, I disagree with your interpretation of this particular Iroquois uh, thing, because you cannot, you cannot take the frozen that one of the twins represents Flint in his story. You cannot say that because that's uncomfortable compared to the spring, you can't say that it's less than, 
right? And 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 that's his, you know, his his that's his idea is that uh, there there is a, there is the lesser and the greater, you know, in terms of the brain hemispheres. Uh, but I make the analogy with Abraham Maslow, and Maslow did exactly what you're you're saying. He lived for six weeks in his internship with the the Blackfoot. Are you familiar with that? No, no. Yeah, so he lived with the Blackfoot uh, as as his internship, thinking that they would represent his hierarchy of needs. What he learned, and he admitted this in a piece way, 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 way later in his life, what he learned was the opposite. What he learned that self-actualization, which his theory continues to say very few people ever get to, it's at the top of the, of the pyramid, right? He said, my gosh, self-actualization in this and this is in the you know 1930s when they're on a reservation and there's there's all that that prejudice and everything. They saw self actualization at the bottom of the teepee. It was <laughs> it was the given. You start out you start out in birth you're self actualized, and then it went up to trying to maintain this in the culture right. And he wrote about this much later. And if you if you Google put in the truth about Maslow or something like that, you'll see some of the the, the original people that were with him uh, writing about that that he that he had done that, and that he felt exactly exactly Rodney like you're saying. He felt wow, the anti-Indianism of the 1930s, you know. And I've written in my book on uh, unlearning the language of conquest, anti-Indianism in America. I mean, top scholars from you know some of the Oxford and UCLA were were doing what you're saying. They were, but they were going to the extremists, saying, "Wow, it's a good thing we left that primitive past because they they were cannibals, etc." Right? Whereas Maslow just thought, "No, if I bring this back and say here are these Indians." are better than all the people that I've studied that are non-Indians in terms of self-actualization, I'll be kicked out of, of, of the program. You know, I won't, I won't get my doctorate, right? This kind of a thing, right? So you nailed it. I mean, you nailed it, right? And, and it's sad for a number of reasons, I think, that we all understand. Because that's proven sustainable, right? We're talking about a proven sustainable thing with literature, coming more and more and more to support that like 13,000 years in the Amazon rain basin tremendous human impact humans have we have we have impact on the earth you know 20 years ago I'm, I'm, I apologize for this I, I used to be one of those that said uh, humans are a cancer to the planet and I'm so sorry for having said that because mother earth loves our children as much as, as you know, humans as her children, as she does the, the, the crocodiles and the cockroaches, right? Uh, and, and, the, and the story, you know, this research on the Amazon rain basis shows that. Tremendous impact. Black earth was made from human waste and all this in beautiful ways. Uh, trees were cultivated in ways that were, and, and for 13,000 years, no extinctions, you know? Uh, and, and so I, I really think that we, that by 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 getting in touch with this is this doesn't belong to an indigenous group, right? It just happens to be that indigenous cultures, a few that are struggling against all odds, are still holding on to it. This belongs to everyone who's indigenous to, to the earth. But if we don't say, but there are people that that are still doing it, like the UN Nation says, uh, report. But also that for 99% of human history, we had we were happier, healthier, and more sustainable. So why wouldn't we 
why would we want to quote Socrates who said, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't learn amongst trees, only amongst men. So good, good point you, you brought up. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I'll give you a, give you a, a jump in here now, Frank, just, just one point of that, that I was just thinking when you were saying that, and I actually saw another in, in, you know, indigenous scholar say this the other day, but it's something I've written about in one of my articles is that what everybody forgets in the modern world, if they go back far enough in their ancestry, at some point, every single one of them, their family members were indigenous in the sense of the word, right? So if I follow my line all the way back to Ireland and Scotland and places like that, and we go all the way, at one point, my family members would have been considered paganists, which is just a, a terrible way of just saying that they were one with nature and they loved nature and they didn't see that separation. Right. And so we forget that, that actually this was our life, or at least our, our ancestry. It was our ancestors life way for most of human history. And it's only in this very short moment in time in what we call modernity that it's been completely forgotten. Now, I often ask my uh, in audiences where I where I speak, I'll say, raise your hand if, if you've got in, uh, indigenous relatives. And, you know, no one raises their hand if it's a white audience. I go, well, go back a little bit further. Go back a little further. And pretty soon, everybody's hand is up and they get that Thank point. You. Yeah. Frank. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering about white people and alienated white people who are living in fear now. Because from that perspective, it's hard to see a future on this planet. It, there's so much distress about our ecological crisis. People can't see a way forward. We're doubling down on electric cars and everything else, but that doesn't seem to be to have any kind of promise. And at the same time, white people being afraid of going back. They say there's no going back to our hunting and gathering ancestry. And so with those like bookends, in our experience, we don't know what to do. And so Rodney and I are looking for some kind of synthesis here, some kind of new old way that we could promote to people and show this synthesis as a path forward. What would you add to that? Yeah, well said. I, I think that the first thing to do is to say this is not about indigenous peoples. This is not about indigenous groups, you know, and in fact, most of them are losing it just as much as we have. Right? I have made that point. This is about how is, and, and what worldview scholarship is about, is the deep understanding of human relationship with nature and supernature, or the spiritual realm or the metaphysical realm. So if we say that and we get that across, okay, this is not about some group of people. This is not about Jewish people. It's not about indigenous people. It's not about Irish people. This is about how are we meant to be on, on this planet in the highest probability, because it's all a great mystery. And then you say, okay, let's look at the research that shows these 40 precepts. What if we started becoming more non-hierarchical? What if courage was, became an, a very important thing and that the highest expression of courage was not fighting, it was generosity? What if we move from courage to a fearless trust in the universe once we take action because of this sense of a bigger picture that we are not humans seeking a spiritual experience, but we're spirits seeking and engaging in a, in a, in a physical human experience. 
And so there's this, this idea of, of reincarnation, if you will, although, you know, it's, it's a com complete mystery difference between Eastern, for example, in New British Columbia is people say the kids say that they come back as palm as uh, cedar trees and, 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 and frogs, whereas, you know, it's not good to come back as an animal from an Eastern tradition. Um, Respect for, for, for gender roles, fluidity, emphasis on community welfare, non-materialistic, earth is loving and living, inseparability of head and heart, competition to develop positive potential, not to be superior, uh, on and on and on. We go down this list, emphasis on responsibility over rights, um, uh, trance-based learning is natural and essential, uh, you know, personal vitality is essential. Nature is benevolent. Uh, high respect for women. Those things don't have a color. You know, those are those are values. Mm. And if we start saying, well, you know, those values make sense. I've had people I, I, I did, did a presentation to a group of clinical psychologists and right away someone got kind of defensive and said, hey, look, and they were all white psychologists. And, you know, we I'm looking at this this chart for arrows. And, you know, uh, I don't like the things, you know, on the left. I don't like uh, acceptance of authority or, you know, I'm, and I don't even see uh, time as, as linear. And uh, um, I don't want to see revenge and conflict mitigation. You know. And then I just kind of was quiet for a minute. And pretty soon one of her colleagues came in and said, but Doris, what about such and such and such and such? And pretty soon this dialogue happened. And the bottom line was she comes back and she goes, oh, I get it. These are manifestations in our institutions of education, corporations, government, et cetera, religions, uh, Hollywood. And this isn't necessarily something that I don't believe in. And I kind of wanted to say, duh, yeah, of course, right? But I did it, of course. And I went, yeah, you got it, you got it. And so once people begin to understand this, and I think this is why UC Berkeley's uh, prestigious Science Center for the Greater Good selected our book as one of the top 15 uh, practical um, uh, and inspirational uh, uh, science books, right? Because of uh, of this, this, this quality. So... That's one part to my answer. The other part you're probably not going to like. I think you like this part. The other part is, well, I'll tell you what happened when I was at U University of British Columbia right before the pandemic. I was speaking to a bunch of, of people in their curriculum and instruction program. At the end of it, someone said, Dr. Jacobs, I they call me four arrows. And they said, four arrows. Do you think that if we can all begin to reflect metacognitively on how the problems that we have, our early child experiences, our assumptions about life. If we do that and we use the trans-based learning to recognize how it got to us and how we can change it, that we can pull out of this tailspin and that we can turn things around. And it just came out of me. I said, no, I don't think we can. <laughs> and they went from like loving me to hating me in that moment. And the hands went up, you know, and the first question I knew what it was going to be. And why are you here? You're not, you don't, you don't profit from your books. You're, you know, uh, you, you get your expenses paid to come here and do this work. But it take, that takes a lot of energy. Why are you here then? What are you doing? And I quoted from Sitting Bull. I wrote a little monograph called Sitting Bull's Words for a World in Crisis. And uh, he had been interviewed one time, uh, you know, after he had been uh, out of, out of prison and, and, and he's with the Buffalo Bills thing. 
And they said, you're so known for your generosity, for your songwriting, even when you were being chased, for your, your, your continuing your spiritual traditions. And they went on saying all these things that he did that was so amazing. In uh, the throes of smallpox having wiped everybody out, the buffalo all gone. Can you, you know, and his answer was simply, I, I try to be a human being. I try to be a human being. And so I had um, Margaret Wheatley uh, give the forward for that book because a point that she has in her work that I wanted to make with this was, let's change the definition of hope. And let's change it from this idea of, wow, I, I think, I, I hope and, and, and pray that we're going to turn things around and the outcome is going to be such and such. I've seen so many of my fellow activists uh, burn out with that kind of hope because they'll work really hard at something and then they look at the reality and it's worse. So I, I offered to this, this group, let's redefine hope and see if that helps you get see, see my point of saying, no, I don't have hope that we can do this. Hope is not the certainty of an outcome. It's the certainty that whatever we're doing is the right thing to do, regardless of the outcome. And then that brings us into this idea of, of this, this trust in the universe, the, this idea of us being spirits. You know, and, and, you know, what science is there? Well, the University of Virginia, you know, for 30 years has been in their, in their perceptual studies program has done some pretty amazing things showing that they're, they're, the one uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist said this is as good a research as anything in, in quantum physics, right? That there's, there's, there's some evidence that they put forward for this life continuing after our death. Um, certainly all the yogic and Vedic traditions talk about it um, and all the religions in some way, you know, that haven't been politicized, you know, for, for power reasons do um, certainly in nature, everything seems to, to recycle. And so it's a great mysterious thing. That's what the word in all the indigenous cultures I've studied for what is called God in the, in the Western world uh, literally is a verb that means great mysterious thing. And so very rarely will we even use the word. We'll go right away into the representation and the manifestation of this great creative energy um, into terms of endearment of grandfather and grandmother, which we see in the frogs, which we see in the trees, and in one another when we're at our highest, highest self, right? And so I see that, that if we have that definition of hope, Frank, and then we start to say, okay, there is a proven worldview. Don't call it indigenous if that turns you off, right? There's a proven worldview that all of our ancestors, you know, as Rodney said, practiced successfully according to all the kinds of science that we have. Uh, not that science is the end all. Um, and then get in touch with your intuition, right? And that's where we get in touch with alternative consciousness and beginning to honor honor that. That's that without knowing the word hypnosis. And I taught hypnosis at UC Berkeley. Ceremony. Indigenous people knew the phenomenon of hypnosis. I learned it from a wild horse. Uh, if you go on YouTube, put in wild horse hypnotist, you'll, you'll, you'll see me doing this with a Mustang. And so once people start looking at these things, they go, wow, this makes sense. All right, what can I do? What have I done in this problem I'm facing that has been a complete acceptance of rigid hierarchy? What is it that I'm doing that that is so fear-based? Why 
what am I doing in, in where I emphasize social laws more than laws of nature? What am I doing that that is is about, you know, uh, on and on and on pretty soon. And I, my students are doing this, you know, they're, they're, they're getting me on it. I mean, I, I kind of don't do it. And they go, Hey, let's look at this. And I go, Oh yeah, 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 let's do it. Right. And it seems to be, it seems to be working. And the letters that I get from all over the world seem to be saying that it's working. Hmm. So definitely. Not, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So definitely feels to me. And that's something that I've been trying to do myself is that if we talk about the way that you defined hope, it has to start with ourselves. We have to be the vision that we want to see in the world. And if we're not that, then probably nothing will change at the end of the day. But if there is this major shift, this tipping point to everybody doing, as you noted, there will be a change. Sort of the hundredth monkey effect, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that, you know, and even if it's in the rebuilding, I, I, I say to my grandchildren, my five and, and, and nine-year-old grandchild, uh, who just spent two months with me here in Mexico, you know, I, I say that, uh, you know, life and death are, are two concepts that we got, you got to get in touch with. And I have them go out and practice dying at five and nine years old. We walk out into the ocean. I say, okay, imagine that as soon as you get to that cold ocean, you got hit by a bus or a bear plane hits you, or for some reason it was your time to pass on and die. And, uh, and I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to stop and hesitate or be afraid. I want you just to go right into those, that, that water, right into the wave, and then just float on your stomach for as long as you can and see the beauty that I saw in my own near-death experience and that Ray Moody's research and University of Virginia's research shows just feel the beauty of the mysterious next phenomenon, which we don't know what it is, but that it's, it's there. They practice that. Right. And I know some parents go, Oh my God, don't talk about death to such young, young kids. Right. But you're afraid of death. You're afraid of life. Right. And uh, indigenous people don't have that problem mm -hmm. that, that, and I'm only using them as an example of people who are still holding on to it. The, the few that are right. Just as a, as a personal story there, something that happened not too long ago, and I had a very profound experience. Uh, I, I wrote an article about it called The Journey with, with the Mushrooms. So you can kind of extrapolate from that what I'm talking about. And in this particular experience, I had this vivid, absolutely real experience of the universe talking to me about spirit and saying that the universe... I am the universe and I'm intelligent, but I need life to experience sentience. sentience. And that's why you are here. This is why you're having this experience right now. And I kind of sat with that for a while, but a lot of what you've been talking about is exactly the conclusions that I came from. It didn't run immediately. And I heard that over and over throughout the night. And just, it took me at least a few months to figure out what was going on, but how you've just explained everything is exactly the what that experience that I had that night. Yes. And, and, you know, and plant medicine, I think it's, it's being overused for commercial purposes, even by some of my friends who are shamans from Peru uh, and ayahuasca plants are starting to be wiped out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I had one student who was a, a, a leader of ayahuasca ceremonies who did a study on does taking ayahuasca change your counter hegemonic thinking, you know, doctoral dissertation kind of title. 
And he found that in the most cases, it didn't. In the cases where it did is where people did sort of like what I'm hearing you say. There was a serious preparation relevant to one's transformation. There was reflection afterwards and, and dialogue and a commitment to not just making it a one-off, that kind of a thing, right? Um, and so, you know, that's an interesting perspective on it. Um, another perspective on it to me is that let's, if we if we are too, of you know, worried about saying that doomsday kind of stuff, let's think about rebuild, rebuilding. Someone's going to rebuild. And if you look at the post-apocalyptic movies, uh, post-apocalyptic movies, on you know, it's always somebody replicating what caused the problem in the first place, right? A machine gun bullets over the chest and all this stuff, right? And so let's change that, you know. And, and as far as I, you know, let's 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 change that. And um, uh, uh, I, I think that you know. I'm a big believer in mythology. That's why, you know, I was upset with with McGilchrist choosing that one and misinterpreting it when there were so many others to choose from. This idea of of one twin that's the solar twin, ones that's you know, monster slayer and child born of the water is a good story. Monster slayer and child born of the water are going in all these twin stories around the world uh, are going to fight the monsters. Well, the monsters are those things in us that, in, that we always knew when we were living in, with nature a million years ago, right? that we have the potential for greed, jealousy, all these things. That's why the origin stories are about that. Except our origin stories are all about women and animals, right? Creating it, right? And that's why in the Sundance, us men, we keep forgetting. That's why, so we have to pierce, the women don't pierce in the Sundance, right? And so these twins are working toward handling this and, and, and becoming one, right? And Monster Slayer comes to the monster with the long arms. And he says, oh, I'm such a strong. He's like Hercules, man. I'm so good. I'm going to get this guy. And Child Born of the Water whispers, brother, I don't think it's going to work. I think his arms are so long, he'll get that arrow before it gets to us. Well, what do you think we should do? Uh, you know, He at least asks the question. And Child Born of the Water says, I think we should sing to him. So he puts his arrow away. They put their arms over each other's shoulders and they sink to him and the monster never having treated that way lets them pass. Well, I don't see that as a lesser and a greater uh, as in the emissary, the, which is his, his first book was called the master and, and it's emissary. Right? Um, and, and, and so now you look at these, these indigenous stories, they all have that complementary that we need winter and to and summer, etc. the sun and the moon. Well, now you look at the origin stories that emerged as we began to separate from nature around 9,000 years ago. So around 5,000 BC, what you see is you see the Vedic scriptures coming out of trying to hold on to that natural world, except they were in the realm of poverty and streets and, and garbage and kings and queens. So they said, let's, let's concentrate on our breath and our body. And they did this, you know, and so they, but they were trying to get back to that. But then the origin stories of Greeks and Romans, you know, the heritage that we have, the twin stories changed. Romulus and Ramus, Castor and Pastor. You got um, uh, Romulus and Ramus, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Hercules and Iphicles. In every case, one of the twins was a direct, strong, dynamic sun. The other one was a reflective, passive moon. And in all those cases, and many more I could name of post-separation from nature, what happens? 
you probably don't even know who Iphicles is. Everybody knows a Hercules, right? And Romulus killed Ramus. So the lunar twin was 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 actually put down. That is creating this this hierarchy of lesser and and greater. Uh, in the foundational mythologies, which Joseph Campbell says are are really Im- Im- important for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that 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 this kind of understanding, and then and then just the more simple thing, like my class did today, is going through each of these and saying what can we do in our real life to move more over here and to help others move over here. Um, it'll help us rebuild. And you know, the Mayan uh, and the uh, the Hopi and a number of, of cultures have mythologies, since we're talking about those, that say that we've done this before. You've heard of the fourth world, the fifth world, you know, that, that you know, the, the Hopi philosophy is that we've been given as a species seven worlds. And who knows what a world is, right? 26,000 years as a cycle of whatever, who knows? But that the first time humans, with our great imaginations, and our thumbs, we started to think, well, we're better than nature. And we started doing our better than nature thing. And nature started suffering in terms of inter-oneness. And first time a fire then engulfed the world. And the next one was an ice age. And the next one was a flood, right? Now, who knows, you know, in terms of of, of, of this, you know, there's the forbidden archaeology and other books like that, you know, kind of give support for this. But even if it's just a metaphor that 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 this happens uh, and has, has happened before, it should give us some pause to say this foundational worldview, this foundational materialistic anthropocentric worldview is killing us. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is this kind of idea of human exceptionalism as us being better and more important and far more intelligent than everything else in our environment and on the planet. And that's a big part of the problem, right? Well, that's, yeah, that's the anthropocentrism. That's the anthropocentrism is, is, is killing us. And that's the title of a peer reviewed paper that, 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 uh, that I had published, you know, because it's, it's, it's a serious situation to, uh, and, and especially in terms of, by diversity and inclusion initiatives. You know, uh, uh, I, I wrote a book challenging this idea of chief diversity officers and education and corporations and showing that this is another top-down thing. So this should be, you know, bottom-up and all that. But, um, you know, this this idea of, of, of diversity and, and inclusion, we really, if we look at animals, Look at a cockroach that's coming out of your kitchen, right? And study it and look at it and see how, see what possibilities of sentience that you, you think it might have. Of course, people can do this with their dogs and cats all the time, right? But start doing this with a weed that's coming out of a crack in the concrete. Start looking at this with some degree of respect that doesn't put your own way of being in the world with all our technologies as a superior intellect to that and then go online and Google it. Right. And see what you can learn about it. Now there's books coming out like the secret life of trees, which, you know, as a sun dancer, I can tell you people knew for tens of thousands of years. That's why we ask permission of the relatives of the tree. We're going to take down for the dance because we understand that root connection that 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 they have right this is a hard one this is the this is i think you're on to what is probably you know the the single most important problem that we have and that is our 
our separation from the understanding that the that if anything, the other than human are our teachers. I would um, I would look at this from the view of a therapist. So it's all about relationship, right? And if you're talking about relationships with your friends, your family, your lover, whatever it is, a theme that comes up now more and more in the therapy community is this idea of relationship repair, apologizing and creating some new way forward with your partner. And it seems to be that's what white culture has to do right now is a relationship repair job on our relationship with the planet. And I'm wondering how we go about that. I, I'm, I mean, apology seems to be called for right now. Well, I mean, the, the you know, relationship, reciprocity, right. respect and responsibility are four R's of, of the, you know, of how we live, right? And it's all about relationship, all about relationship. And I see it firsthand when I'm living with people like the Robin Simon people. Um, but psychology, which is probably the most colonized of our sciences, if you call it a science, um, is is really starting to get it. And, I, and I've been kind of surprised. I was just invited by the uh, chief editor-in-chief of the, uh, the, the Review of General Psychology. You know, that's one of the, you know, the, the, the category one APA, right? And I, I, and I said, look, have you read my article criticizing APA about its history of eugenics and, and about the, its role in the torture cover up and all this stuff? And they said, yeah, we want you not to pull punches. We want you to write about this in our, for the special issue of the, uh, of the APA's, uh, you know, <clears throat> journal. And so I'm seeing the, that the field of psychology is doing what you're saying, you know, in terms of starting to look at things that are, you know, so basic, right? Uh, and I, I have, I, I didn't, I, I would have said clinical psychology is the last place I'm going to put my hope in. I'm, I'm looking at education, but in my own university, uh, this clinical psychology that has me coming in and, and asking me to decolonize their syllabi, not my people in the school of educational studies, right? <laughs> So um, I think, you know, that, that the, the field of, of, of psychology, if it can begin to embrace worldview reflection, which is what I'm going to write about, if it can begin to em embrace worldview reflection and metacognitive, uh, non-binary, complementary seeking of, of balance. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't see how any therapist can do good work without using trans-based learning, without using concentration-activated transformation or hypnosis or hypnotherapy. I mean, I remember sitting in a hot tub in Marin County 50 years ago or so, maybe 40 years ago, with a union psychologist. And he was talking about a client he's had for about three years and, and has a phobia. And I said, Howard, I said, you've been three years with that person? Yeah, twice a week. I made a fortune out of that. I said, send her over to me. I, I, I've got my Samadhi tank in my Marin County office, and uh, I'll, I'll have her. I'll have her. She was had a fear of water. I'll, I'll hypnotize her to go into the eight inches of water in the Samadhi tank, and then I'll hypnotize her while she's in it. I'll take her out to the lake, and uh, and uh, we'll have her swimming in the lake before you know it. He said, Yeah, that's why I don't send anybody to you. 
you know, how much money I've been making, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and so, I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm being a little, you know, a little harsh here, but um, I think that until we understand that most of our most of our problems that, that we see as psychologists are childhood traumas, you know, this epigenetics of the phenomenon of, of you know, of, 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 of what happened to us. And, and, and that's what Dar- that's why I, inv- I invited Darsha to write, co-write this uh, um this 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 new book uh, you know restoring our kinship worldview because i take it from the top down you know from adults but she her work is from infants up and how how to raise children so they so that children don't grow up with so many of the problems that we have to fix relationally as, as adults so i think that's how yeah and the other thing that i wanted to note there too when you were saying that is like one of the things that i've realized is that Many of the psychological therapies that have been developed, if you look at them very closely, they really are designed to help people live or live at least cope better within the very system that's causing the problem in of itself, right? And so I think that a a lot of therapists that actually, and there are, of course, therapists and many of them really care about the the people that come to them and they starting to realize hold on a second all i'm really doing is i'm giving them tools and strategies to go back into the problem that's causing the issue in the first place and so that clearly is not sustainable there has to be a different way so i'm really excited to hear that actually you know they're speaking to you and want you to come in and and kind of present a different way because i think they're desperate right they're realizing hold on a second, this stuff's not working. I even see that in the self-help genre where if you look at most self-help strategies, that's exactly where it is. It's like, they're not confronting the elephant in the room. They're not taking on the fact that, hold on a second, sure, trauma is a big part of it, but also living in the way that we live is creating us trauma right now. And just giving, telling me to do things that are just going to help me be a better soldier in modernity is not going to lead to lasting flourishing. Well, I hope you'll give me permission to cite Dr. Rodney King uh, in this article. Uh, and that would be like uh, wherever we are, whatever minutes we're into, I'll I'll use that as a citation sure. because I think that that's really that's that's sentences that you just said there. I I'm gonna put into 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 the article. It's it's uh I guess it was yeah, it, you you put it into my consciousness, you know, where 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 it, it needs to be said in the introduction. Well, I can send you the article too, because I wrote about it. And to be oh, honest, I like that. yeah, and, and that's what I noticed is that this is the thing is that people don't want to accept that actually the way that we're living right now is the thing that's causing us all of our problems mainly. You know, be this constant kind of almost faith-based hope that, you know, just some more technology or some more policies and things are going to be better. But what they're not looking at is the fact that things aren't good it's not because there's anything wrong with us. It's because the system's flawed. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much you want to try to kind of just be in that system. It's always going to be fail you. It's never going to move to a position of flourishing. And coming back to Maslow, you can see why he put self-actualization right at the top. And what you were saying was, right, is that in that indigenous worldview, it starts right at the beginning um, that makes perfect sense, right? Because that's actually the reality. If we live the way that we've been describing, that would be our experience from the get-go. Self-actualization would be the starting point, not the end point. The end point is because of 
the capitalistic, materialistic, consumeristic kind of narrative. That's why we always stick it to the end, right? So you need to be good slaves and you you got to basically just, just keep feeding the system because that's what it wants. But the system doesn't care about us. It doesn't care at the end of the day how we, you know, how we unfold and if we come out the other side better. Well, you know, before I knew about the Maslow story many years ago when I was on Pine Ridge, um, I had read uh, Kohlberg's, you know, developmental theory, and which is very similar, right? It, you know, there's only a few people get to where you make decisions for the right reasons, as opposed to peer pressure and laws. And I just remember seeing all these children that are nine years old taking care of their siblings with an alcoholic father and hiking miles through the snow, you know, to, to, and I thought, wow, Kohlberg should come here because I can show them that these people have, you know, are already at the very top of that, of, of his, his particular pyramid, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I think I think this we're looking at fundamental structures, and that's what world is, worldview is about. Mm. Worldview is really about the foundation, and if we don't start at that foundation, then we're going to keep spinning our, our our wheels. Yeah, that's a really really good point. But to be respectful of your time, and we're coming to the end, I was wondering what would you want to leave us with? What would be your your kind of parting thoughts for for those listening to this episode? Well, you know, I just, I happen to have my food sitting here because I, I had left it out here last night. And so I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to play a food song to close, if I may. Fantastic. And uh, and, and and the story of it will, will I think, be relevant. Um, this was on the Trail of Tears, which you, your readers can, can, can find out about, but it was a forced march that the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, made of my people, the Cherokee people, uh, that killed a third and was very brutal, and against it was even against the Supreme Court decision. And many people died and suffered, but every night the women, whether it was a friend of a mother who had died or the mother, would sing songs to the children that... This, this song to the children that said, but did you see the beautiful clouds and the animals in them and how the clouds are giving us this coolness? Did you see the dancing prairie grasses and how they are so beautiful and, and they're feeding the animals? And did you see the beautiful colors of the fish when we crossed the brook and how it's keeping the water clean? And did you hear the beautiful sounds of the birds and how they're... So it was about seeing the beauty all around, no matter how difficult things are, and seeing that we should have some gratitude for the the other that are in all, that that are in our lives, whether they be humans or other than humans that are they're still keeping their responsibility. So I'll I'll play this song. Um, uh, I'll say a little prayer before. If that will talk about maybe we all find ways to help each other and balance our our, our world again. Unkashila wachantaka namakompo nata tewa topa unshimaka hituanyan kela o yate o yasin unchiwich kalapon o chaki pohetu which was only washed it when you were picked dealer o yate o yasin chankoluto ok namani o chaki behind la kovichi waki to kashila kicks you. Mishanti a tawa wogelaki. Thank you.
Tacho Yasa. That was great. Yeah. Wow. That guy's got a pretty fierce um, body of scholarship he's working with. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, you know, to, to you before we got started, Frank, I mean, you know, he's been a massive inspiration to me because I love reading his books and what he says. And it's kind of allowed me to kind of make sense of some stuff that I needed to make sense of. And uh, yeah, I think that was a really great interview because it does in does definitely in a lot of ways answer some of the questions that we've been asking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Had you heard this bit about Socrates saying that he couldn't learn among trees? He could only learn among men. I don't remember that specifically. Cause I mean, it's not really my background, but I, but I can tell you, for example, which I always found fascinating because I wrote about this actually in my, my doctorate because I did research on, on this particular element was the idea of embodiment, right? I was fascinated to find out that Plato, who was said to be a wrestler, had a huge distrust of the body. He made that very, very clear in his writings, right? Oh. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if that is correct. I mean, we can go and have a look, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the other thing too is that many of the 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 kind of the what's referred to, especially in 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 science and so forth, the visionaries of science during the industrial revolution and so forth. You know, m- many of them had a huge disdain for the natural world. I mean, you know, they they talked they talked about the natural world in terrible ways, and it, people try to kind of justify it and say, "Oh, it was only metaphorical," but I don't think it was. I think it was genuinely how they felt about it. I mean, it, it was it's quite concerning, actually, you know, the way that it was described. And I've written about that in my my latest um, study, right? We have just finished my 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 master's in eco psychology, and I was very surprised to see that. So I'm then I'm not I'm not at all surprised then that we're at this place where we don't see the value in the natural world because it's literally been educated out of us since the enlightenment since the industrial revolution all of those epochs of human recent human history have all kind of put this kind of narrative in place from our education to just the way you know if you look at how people talk generally uh, companies organizations so are we surprised then that we don't see this this kind of value system that uh, Four Arrows was talking about. Hi, Dr. King here, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to myself and Frank as we explore with our guests ways to return the human animal to wild health. For more information on Frank, you can go to his website at exuberantanimal.com or visit humananimal.info to find out more about my coaching programs, read the blog, get your hands on some human animal gear, or explore our upcoming events. Until the next time, stay wild and free.